Okay, welcome to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald. I am your host. Uh, this is a podcast about what's it about? Um, just whiteness, I guess, but all the things that it intersects with, um, particularly academia, language education, um, and other aspects of society. Um, sometimes I talk about TV, sometimes I talk about movies, sometimes about music, uh, but mostly those things. Today, and for the next three episodes, though, I am calling an audible on this, and basically I am busy, and so I wanted to record a few, get them in the bank, um, and without guests. I haven't done one with, oh, last episode was a presentation, but I haven't done one without a guest all year, and I want to do three here, and what I'm going to do for those who are, I mean, I know that some of you are students, maybe, you know, doctoral students, some master's students, but if you're really interested in just research as it is, I'm going to tell you from when I decided I wanted to go to my doctoral program until now, which is when I'm finishing up the research for my dissertation. I won't be able to tell you about the whole writing because that's going to take some time after I record this. Not that much time. I write fast. I didn't say it's going to be good. It's going to be done. Uh, but I'll tell you everything up until the writing. Writing, I don't think is all that interesting to talk about in a podcast. No. But research could be interesting. Maybe it is. You'll see soon. So this is going to be a three-part series. Um, part one today is going to be about me deciding, you know, I'm going to go to grad school again. Go do it again. Um, and then part two is, oh, so from there until uh, the important conference I went to that changed my whole trajectory about a year into my degree. Uh, part two, two weeks from now, is going to be about from that conference up until I created the Ezel Project, which you've heard about. And part three is going to be about from the Ezel Project to the dissertation, which is about the Ezel Project. So those are the three parts. Um, yeah, uh, anyone who is able to and interested in contributing to the Patreon, the link will be in the show description. Uh, that's it. All right, enjoy. So I graduated from my master's program in 2012. Um, and, you know, I, erroneously, my whole life, you all know this about me, I've, I've always known a lot of people, but I've struggled to really, really connect with people. And one of the things that I thought to myself was that because both my dad and my mom had gone to graduate school in some capacity, which is certainly rare for black folks of their age. Uh, and they had met a lot of their closest friends through their graduate schools. And they, my parents didn't tell me this would happen, but part of me thought, because again, as someone with my brain chemistry, I'm only learning things mostly from the outside. I'm not really, I couldn't really feel the stuff correctly. I'm, I'm trying to feel it, but I'm, I'm, I'm intellectualizing every social relationship and that's why I'm not very good at it but anyway uh I had you know told myself I'd come away from grad school with all my best friends and I graduated and we had like a, a sort of late afternoon party afterwards and then you know that was cool but then that was kind of it and I looked at myself and I had a shitty job at a you know the kind of language school where you would become quote unquote full-time if you taught 20 hours a week. And if you taught 20 hours a week, then you would receive prep time and, and benefits. You still only got paid like 35 grand, but 
Um, yeah. So I worked 19 hours a week because they didn't want to make it, they, they would give everybody who they would give you as many hours as you wanted up until the 20 hours. Uh, so I was working 19 hours a week, didn't have benefits. Now I had benefits in my life because I was in grad school and they required you to be insured. So I was, it was part of, basically it was part of my loans was, was my insurance in grad school. But then I graduated and they told me that I was on insurance until the end of August. Um, I actually went to the doctor. I didn't use the doctor because I didn't, I, I didn't, my, 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 my master's degree was mostly online. And so I just never, it felt weird going to campus because why? Um, should have, because a couple of times my computer broke and I couldn't write, but I had to buy a tablet and I tried to, anyway, I'm getting off track. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I remember that I didn't have insurance. And on 2012, I had this three-pronged plan. It was called Marathon Manaus Masters. Uh, Manaus is a large city in northwestern Brazil in the state of Amazonas. And I had decided that I was going to go there because since I was a small child, I wanted to go to the Amazon rainforest. Not to be a cultural appropriation missionary type. I just wanted to see some animals. Uh, so when I looked up the flights in, I guess it must've been December or January, Manaus was pretty cheap. But by the time I was getting around to buying the flights, Manaus was very expensive and I could not afford it. So I did not go to Manaus. I did go to Ecuador, which was much cheaper and I had a great time, but you know, whatever. Anyway, I'm not complaining about this. Uh, I guess anyone who listens to this knows that I don't pretend that I've had like a hard life in this sense. I was broke at the time, to be clear. I was not poor, but I was struggling to pay my rent. Uh, but I had, you know, enough from these little paychecks and the fact that I did have my insurance covered that I was able to afford a, you know, a many, many stop flight to Ecuador. Uh, so anyway, didn't go to Benaus. And then the marathon later was eaten by Hurricane Sandy. But in August, I did not know this. So what that meant was I was training for my first ever marathon and I was about to be uninsured. And I was like, this seems like a bad idea. Seems like a bad idea to be going out there, not just running a marathon, but training for it, especially in the summer. And, you know, if I need to have some kind of uh, medical help, I cannot get it without ruining my entire finances. But anyway, I didn't get insurance. And uh, I was like, what can I do? What can I do? I was that, the, you know, Obamacare had just passed, but I was 26, so it didn't help. Couldn't be on my parents' insurance. And um, so I signed up for that emergency insurance, which is like $200 a month. The United States is fun. Um, and if you pay $200 a month out of pocket, basically, if you have to go somewhere in an ambulance, they won't ruin your life. But you can't just go to the doctor. And then that same year, I uh, they found out that someone at my job, a student, had tested positive for tuberculosis. I don't know what century it is. Uh, and so we all had to get tested before we came back on the campus, which sounds familiar now, now doesn't it? Anyway, so to get a TB test at like CityMD is a whole bunch of money that I didn't have. So that was fun. I mentioned this insurance thing because it was it was the main impetus behind the fact that I realized I need to get a better fucking job. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time in 2012. It just sort of kickstarted my career away from just being a classroom teacher and trying to look for more stable positions. So I got a nonprofit job. 
it came down to the wire though because i was about to lose the language education job because i was bad at it i was not a bad teacher i was a bad employee i didn't listen to them and i uh just got fed up with what they were doing and they didn't like that so i was about to lose that job they cut my hours and I was about to not be able to pay my rent at all. And I got hired for the nonprofit job about a week before I would have run out of money. And the paycheck came in <laughs> and was deposited. I actually had mailed a, the rent check that if I had not gotten paid that day, the rent check would have bounced. Got lucky there. Um, so I did that job for four years. But at the, by the end of the, four, the job the, where I was running the, the uh, edu- education department at the nonprofit, I was married. And uh, Alyssa was like, what are you doing, man? Because that job, I like the job. I like the people there. Well, some of them, not all of them. Um, But, you know, there was no growth possible there. Like, I was already in charge of the adult education department. I couldn't be more in charge of the adult education department. And at one point, we were considering applying for a much larger grant, which would have really expanded the adult education department. And then the executive director said it's too expensive. Um, I don't understand how grants are expensive, but... He didn't want to do it, which meant that there was no way our program was going to grow. And it's true because I've looked back at the job and it hasn't grown since then. So anyway, uh, so I needed something different. And I was looking around and as any of you who is a language person, especially if you're not like a tenured language professor, there's not a lot of money in the language game unless you're doing really harmful shit and like doing uh, language ideology, oppression and stuff out there. That's there's, there's money in holding people down in terms of language, you know, accent reduction and all that bullshit. But there's not a lot of money in, you know, trying to do things differently. Now, I hadn't learned anything about Flores and Rosa. That article came out in 2015, but I hadn't read anything about that. I didn't know anything about translanguaging. I didn't have any radical language ideologies at this point. But um, I knew that my students weren't being treated well. So um, I, I left. I left language. And I got the job that I have now, unfortunately, um, which paid me a lot more. Uh, not a lot, not like lawyer money, but like, and not as much money as my wife makes, uh, but uh, percentage wise, a lot more than I was making to the point where I was, you know, we moved into a nicer place. That was nice. Um, so the thing about that job is technically affiliated with a large university. I don't work on the university. I'm not a faculty or anything like that, but I technically am staff of the Nonprofit arm of the university is complicated. I work in a city government office and um, I, it's boring. I've told you many times that I don't like it. Uh, and later on, it became, I believe, harmful. But before it became harmful, it was just boring. And after doing that job for like a year, I was like, I can't, I can't just sit here. Um, and one of the things it offered was a partial tuition reimbursement. If you went to a school affiliated with it, you would get um, a certain percentage of your tuition reimbursed. But you had to work there for a year first. So around this time, I was trying to think what I wanted to do with my career. I said, I don't want to do this training thing forever because I do employee training. You know, um, Of course, I'm still doing it now, but well, we'll see. Uh, and I was looking around for like a different path and I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I knew that like I had people from my master's program who were pushing me to suggest, you've got ideas, get them out there. And, and, you know, I had even 
presented at the the TESOL, you know, big TESOL, as much as I talk about it, the conference in Seattle in early 2017, which was after I started this job, but I'd already got accepted before that. And like, that was like really a big deal. We did really well at that presentation. They gave us a standing ovation, you know, it was probably like 60, 70 people in that room. That's a lot of people for a, you know, conference presentation. Um, and I really thought that that was going to turn into something. A woman from a um, institution, I believe a community college, came to find me after the uh, presentation and said she wanted to fly us out to California to do the same presentation for her school. I was like, this is it. I'm going to be doing presentations and be on the tour. And then she never got back to me ever. So, you know. Uh, but I liked it. I was like, this is cool. I can be good at this. You know, I, I want, to, but the thing about that presentation is it wasn't my research. We were giving a, a spin on research that existed, which is fine. People do that all the time in presentations. Um, but I wanted to have my own. I wanted to have my own ideas. You know, I wanted to be able to say, I thought of this. Obviously you source, you know, you cite, but I mean, I wanted to be able to say, this is Gerald's idea. Um, or a collaboration, but still. And, you know, around this time, you know, uh, people kept asking, you know, my wife, especially, and, and, and my dad, you know, why don't you get the doctorate? And I was like, I don't know, man, what am I going to get it in? Right. And, you know, it became clear to me that I didn't really want to get a doctorate in language itself. I like teaching language, although I haven't done it in many years now, but it wasn't the language that I liked. It was the teaching aspect. I know that may not make sense. I like language, but I'm not so deeply interested in like morphology and syntax and all that. I am interested in language ideologies, as it turns out. I did not know this at the time, but if I had been in a language program, I'm not sure how well I would have done. Maybe I would have done great. Maybe I would have done terribly, but that's not what happened. So then in, in late 2017, I started looking around, started looking around. You know, I said, do I want an online program? Or do I want an in-person program? So I made a spreadsheet because that's how I do everything. And I made a spreadsheet with programs, locations, format, prices, right? Now, to be clear, I wasn't looking at all that many fully funded programs. Now, you can tell yourself that that's a bad idea, but I was not, I don't like the job that I have, but let me tell you, I was not willing to make a stipend or less for five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, eleven 12, 11 years. Um, Alyssa and I had, you know, we knew that we, we didn't, we wanted to be, we were trying to pay loans and save money and we did not need a, a long period in which I was not going to be really be working. Um, I mean, TAing and that's work, but like I wanted to have my, the income that I had. So the point is I was not going to quit my job. So it needed to be something that could work with that. Part of me thought that would mean online is better. So I made a list of some online programs, reputable schools. Um, and then part of me thought, you know, but I really do want and that same part of me from my master's program that I mentioned to you. I wanted to make some friends. That's how I have always, I, you know, I'm 35 now and I was 31 at the time, but like, I always want to find people to connect with. It turns out I did find people to connect with, and this is no shade to the people in my program who I did connect with in some capacity, but I have found a lot of people across the world to connect with once I started, you know, really putting my work out there. But that's, I didn't know that that would happen. Um, so I wanted to go in person, but part of me was like, but 
but but what's the level of the program? And I still had my, you know, my, my dad in my head talking about prestige and the prestige. And we all know that the word prestige comes from French and it means it's a trick, right? Not literally, but it's, it's a trick. Prestige is, is bullshit. And, uh, and I just sort of had to take my dad out of my head and just look at the programs for what they were and how much they cost. So I looked at the EDD program in organizational change, which I thought was a nonsense title, but considering I have a, I'm going to have a degree in instructional leadership, well, it's not that much less vague. Uh, that one's at USC, Rossier, which is a reputable school. We did not know that you could pay your way in the side door at that time. <laughs> that program is, I believe it's three years, and you do that was all online. Um, you do sort of like what would have been, I guess, Zoom. They didn't say Zoom, but they said everyone's face is on the screen. So Zoom-like, although I think they might have been using 2U or one of those shady companies. In fact, I actually thought about working at 2U because my friend works there. And the more I learned about it, the shadier it was. I'll tell you that story another time. But the fact is, I, uh, I think I pissed her off because I kept asking her if anybody else who worked there wasn't white and they didn't like me asking that question. And this is before I even wrote any of the stuff I've written. So I guess this has always been inside of me. Anyway, um, I looked at that program. It's very expensive. Uh, I looked at a similar program at Vanderbilt. It's pretty expensive. I looked at a program at Columbia because, again, I really did want to attend some class in person because um, I thought that it would help with the cohortness. There are people that I've met through my scholarship who I've never met in person, who I've only seen through a screen. And of course, in the last 20, 21 months or whatever, we've all been doing mostly that and that's been fine, but I don't know that it would have worked as well had I not also done some stuff in person. And so the Columbia program only accepted um, applicants every two years and it was called Aegis. It's the adult education graduate something, something, something. Um, but that was specifically about like adult learning theories especially and because I had spent most of my career including now uh, teaching adults I said maybe it's the adult aspect that I should focus on um, and then there was the hunter program right and I you know, I looked at them and I I, I, uh, I compared the prices and hunter was not only the cheapest because it's cheaper but also because I was going to get a partial rebate and I said all right and it's like it was one night a week more or less um, I talked to them about, I, I emailed, I, I emailed for a meeting with the director of the program who told me, he asked me what I was interested in researching. Um, he misunderstood me because I said I was a language teacher and he said, well, you could walk into any school with that certification and get a job now. But he, he, I didn't say I was certified. I taught, I teach adults. Um, that's not his fault though. I wasn't clear. He also said everybody is researching race these days, which is probably true. What I think he meant is that a lot of white people are doing research on black people, which is not what I'm doing. But again, I didn't know that either. So I wasn't even going to focus on race. And this is kind of the point of this story, how I ended up doing what I'm doing, because I wasn't going to focus on it at all. Um, so, you know, Hunter seemed like the best choice. And I... It was the kind of thing with it. It was where I wasn't like pressed, you know. Um, we didn't know what we were going to do child-wise. Um, maybe we were going to do it. Maybe we weren't. We thought maybe, we, in fact, at the time, we were planning to wait until I finished, which 
well, we still wouldn't have a kid now. Um, but so I applied. Oh, first, uh, I wanted to go to their information session and they rescheduled it and I didn't get the, the, uh, update and I missed it. And I was really upset because I really wanted to ask some questions because frankly, I was concerned. I knew that most of these programs, a lot of them, you know, the people are K-12 teachers, right? Most teachers are K-12 teachers. So, uh, I was concerned that it wouldn't be the right program for me. That I'd feel left out. Um, so I, he told me there was another one in January and I went to it. I asked a couple of questions. There was a guy there who I'm now friends with, who just was an adult language teacher. And, uh, he told me, yeah, he, he does, he did the same thing that I did and he had found a home in the program. So literally happening to speak to him was, was a big deal. And I met, um, a couple of people who ended up being in my cohort, one of whom has dropped out, but uh, the others. And yeah, so then I went and I had to go through the process of applying and taking the GRE. Oh boy, because they required it at the time. They have not required it since the pandemic and I hope that they don't put it back because it's nonsense. It has nothing to do with my ability to complete this program, but I did it. So I went, signed up, bought the big GRE book. How did I study for the GRE? I did one test every day on the way to school. And that was it. I don't like to, I'm not a test crammer. I can memorize things very fast, but those are not the, like GRE, those, you can't memorize everything in math, right? Um, if it's literally just like a vocabulary test, I'll just sit down and memorize it. But for something like that, I just wanted to refresh my memory with the way they were going to be asking questions. Now, I know that this is something that wouldn't work for everybody, but that's how it worked for me. I hadn't taken a standardized test and I didn't have to do it for my master's. So I can't, I don't think I've taken a standardized test since uh, uh, SAT or SAT2 or something like that, where I went to a place just to take a test. Yeah, no, it had been... If this was January 2018, it had been um, 16 years. <laughs> so, you know, it was unfamiliar. But I did that. And then it told me my scores immediately, which is weird. Um, which And he, he, the director had said, we want you to get above something like a 50 or 60 percentile. And I did better than that. So that was fine. Um, so I knew that. I'd be qualified for the test, but I still didn't know if I'd get in or not. I don't know what they're looking for. Um, so then we had, they called us in for an interview. Um, and that involved going, had, being interviewed by some professors, answering some questions, and then writing an essay, and then answering some other questions with a different professor. And they were seeing both, you know, they were saying, don't try to, I don't, they didn't say this, but in my head, I'm just like, if I go there and try to impress us with my, impress them with my knowledge, it's not going to work. I'm just going to answer the questions as honestly as I can. In the application I had put, they wanted us to write a problem of practice, right? What are you going to study? Let me tell you, it's not what I ended up studying, but the problem of practice I wrote was that they, I used to work at an adult language program and it was free and the attendance was bad. And so I would like to figure out what mechanism can be employed to improve attendance at these places. And I've said this to you before, cynically, I th thought if people, if I found out a way 
to do that. Um, then people would come to me and they would give me all the money. I don't know. I just thought that I'd be the guy who figured out attendance at three programs. Um, so I, I wrote that in a less cynical way because I did want to help people in these programs. That was it. And nothing to do with race. There's no whiteness, no disability. Just what can I do to improve attendance at free language programs? Uh, and then I wrote the same freaking essay. I don't know why they wanted us to write another essay. And I was nervous because I have terrible handwriting and they gave us a blue book. So I was writing with a pencil. I don't know what century this process is from, but I did it. I wrote a lot. I just word vomited on it. I hoped they, I mean, I was worried they wouldn't be able to read it. And then, then I got in. I still have the letter here in my drawer where I'm sitting. I was validating because I don't know, there's a part of me that still, I had friends who had doctors, I had friends who were professors by that point, right? I was more than 10 years out of school, um, from out of under, uh, more than 10 years out of undergrad. So I had friends who would go on and gotten their doctorates and, you know, gotten a job. Uh, but I still felt that I wasn't worthy of this, the quote unquote highest level of education. Little did I know, but anyway, uh, so I got in. And then there was this long period. I got in April. There was a four and a half month period where I had gotten in, but I didn't start yet. And I just overthought everything. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, um, I got the syllabus for both of my first two classes in July because these were the like foundational classes for the degree. And I read as much of it as I could. <laughs> beforehand. I emailed some of the professors with questions and they said, chill out, dude. They didn't say it that way, but they did say it. Um, and, you know, I did what is, I started to do what, I was really nervous. I just really was nervous that it was going to be too much work for me, especially because I was working. Um, when someone else, when we had spoken to someone in the information session, she told us that it takes her in a given week. And at that point, since she's a year ahead of me, she must've been in her first year. It took her about a weeknight and an entire weekend day. Now, again, I didn't have a child. I didn't even have Neptune then. I could have given up a weeknight and a weekend day, but it still seemed daunting to me. And it would have been impossible with a child and a dog. So I was really nervous. I was first going through early stages of therapy. I hadn't yet figured out that I had a neurodivergence. Um, but I was really nervous and I remember I was really going through some intense therapy at the time unrelated to school um, so like we had we took we did a weekend plan and I was really really nervous about getting back um, you know I just kept being nervous that I wouldn't finish my work wouldn't finish my work wouldn't finish my work I was just really really anxious at the beginning especially the classes were really interesting and I'll tell you about them in a second but you know I wrote the whole first 10 page paper like two weeks early didn't need to do that. And I kept doing that. I just, I just want to be, I said, let me just try to be a week ahead in case something happens. I don't know what would happen, but I just kept, well, what if something happens? What if something happens? But what if something happens? Um, and of course, in the world that we live in in 2021, we all know that something could happen, but we didn't know that back then. Um, but anyway, so I did what was known as in basketball as a heat check. I think I mentioned this year before. 
if you don't know basketball and what a heat check is, a heat check is basically if you watch like a Steph Curry or a Clay Thompson or somebody who shoots threes from very far away, you know, a heat check is you, you do something that seems difficult and it goes well. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to keep shooting threes until I miss. And that's basically what I started doing. And I'm still doing it. For me, the heat check was I'm going to approach this first semester in the way that I am most comfortable doing it. And if it doesn't work, and I'm going to have a problem, but I'm going to have to recalibrate entirely. And if it does work, I'm just going to keep doing it. And I only ran into a couple of obstacles, which you'll hear about eventually. So basically, I started out by doing everything early. I started out wanting to get one week ahead. And by the end of the semester, I was like three, four weeks ahead. And like I handed in the 20-page the paper at the end of the semester in one class, like literally three weeks early. Everybody else was asking for extensions. And I was kind of annoyed because I was done. Um, like he had given it back to me and they hadn't finished. I'm not blaming this on them. I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo. That's the point. I'm not extra skilled. I just don't have the ability to settle down and relax about these things. Um, I've compared myself, especially with my understanding of my neurology now, to a bullet train. I will go very, very fast if I am on the track. And if I am off the track, I will crash and everybody will die. Um, so, yeah. So that was the, so I was, you know, and it just led to a lot of arguments with my wife at the beginning of the time um, because I didn't want to do anything at this, you know, because I went, anyway, silly. But importantly, uh, I had two classes that first fall. There was the how to be a doctoral student class and the like, just it's kind of like a history of educational policy class, right? And both of those people are still involved in my career. What one is the director of the program, and one is uh, one of the people who's on my committee. So uh, these two classes were very different in a lot of ways. So I'm going to talk about the policy one first. That one's kind of like, like I said, a history of educational policy. It started with like we did some Dewey, we did some, um, you know, Brown versus Board of Ed. Um, and that was much more luxury. We were sitting in a room. It was the second of two. Most of these classes, classes like 4.30 to 7 and then 7.10 to 9.40. And the second class, we'd always try to end a little bit early because I had a classmate who had to get home early. He lived really far away. Um, so that was much more luxury um, and much more, I don't know, like other grad classes I'd had. But I liked the professor a lot. And he, he'd been, he'd been around a long time and, you know, me and my weird radical stuff, which hadn't really developed yet, I did get along with him. And he, for whatever reason, although I, again, I am different from most scholars, he really cottoned to my writing. Like he really liked my writing and it was weird. I, that, that hadn't happened much in my master's. It, I had, it hadn't happened in really in years. I was not a strong writer in college because I was not really interested in my material for better or worse, mostly worse. Um, I only wrote a couple of good articles in the school news, school magazine. Most of them were pretty bad. Well, looking back, there's there's some skill in there, but I wasn't really tapping into it, but he really liked it. And I see maybe it's shallow of me to say, well, well, I like the fact that he liked it or vain, but he did. Um, and we still, you know, he, 
by chance, each each year's group, each year's cohort was sort of matched up with a person as their like leader scholar person, and he was ours. So it was a good thing I got along with him. Um, anyway, so that was one class. The other class was sort of the, again, intro to doc class. And then he worked as hard. He, uh, he gave us, he, he took points off when we messed up on our APA. Um, he took points off when we messed up on our formatting, on, on like agreement, like data is plural, is what he said to us. I don't know that he cared, but he was, he was explicit about the fact that he was grading us on this up in advance. Um, and telling us that it was because if we wanted to write elsewhere, you know, they wouldn't be looking to support us. And you can quibble with that all you want, but if you're going to be upfront about it, then I can deal with it. Like, I think a lot of that stuff is nonsense. I mean, data being plural, fine. But like, um, in fact, now I think about it, I got to go look at my dissertation and make sure that it says data is plural. Uh, damn it. Um, <laughs> anyway, nah, that's gonna bother me. It's gonna bother me. <laughs> when I finish recording this, I'm gonna go mess with it. Anyway, so, you know, um, that class, he really went over things. We went over, that was the first time we did a, a official lit review. He had us make a, a chart with the lit, like the, the thing and the citation and, you know, what were the methods and this, you know, the way that if you're just looking through an article and you're just looking for the findings, like the way you would do that. And, you know, we did that a lot. The lit review was the big part of the class and the lit review then turned into our first paper, which we were sort of vaguely proposing a pilot study. And in that one, I was going to do the problem of practice from my essay, which was intent improving attendance at these adult education programs. So uh, in that, I was looking at the research and, you know, I found every time I, I, there wasn't a lot of research on adult education community programs. There's just not a lot because frankly, um, the programs are free and the attendance is bad and it's hard to get people to sit still. Like, I don't mean sit still, but like, hey, come do this study with me. If they're not going to show up to class, they're not going to show up to the study um, a lot of the time. It's just not, it's not a lot of it isn't published and people, they don't tend to work in these places for them to be interested interested in studying them. Um, there's a little bit though. And I found a, a big study that had come out the year before from Gershenson talking about how having just one black teacher increased, well, I don't know if they use increase, I should say correlated with better graduation rates for students across many, many, like a longitudinal study, right? Well, I don't know if it's a longitudinal study, but a lot of data. And that was interesting to me. And then I read some studies about these programs and I lear learned that although the studies didn't usually mention the race of the teachers, the teachers were usually white and the students were not. And I found some studies that showed that the students thought they were being disrespected. I said, interesting. And I still didn't really mention race per se, but I did cite the Garshenson study. And basically what I'm saying is the wheel started turning. I didn't know where I'd go with it. I went back and forth. Would I Should I include the language part? Like this was an adult language program, but do I want this concept to be broader than that and be applicable to all free programs? I don't know. I went back and forth. I took language out. I put it back in. Took language out. I put it back in. But that's what I wrote about. So the next semester is really when things changed. And that's really where we're going to end this week's episode.
um, as in two classes. The statistics class with a very nice young man. I say young, he's older than I am, obviously, but he is the age now, I'm sorry, he was, the age that I am now is the age that he was then. He was 35 and he told us that. Um, and he was very clear that he was teaching us statistics in a way that we thought that we education people and only one of us was like a math teacher um, could understand. What I learned about statistics is Well, a couple of things. The first thing I learned is that most of it, what he wanted us to do is to be able to plug things into formulas by hand. There were certain points at which he would say, all right, just put it in the calculator. But like, he wanted us to be able to plug things into formulas by hand. I had to go and buy a TI-83 like it was eighth grade. Um, and there were a lot of assignments the assignment, the single assignment that kept me up the latest, right? Like I am not a person who likes to stay up until two, three in the morning doing homework. I can't do it. I'm going to fall asleep. And this is even before Ezel. But like, also, I've never been that person in college. I wasn't the last minute person. Um, there were times when I'd fall behind and I would do it. But like once I got my act together in college, even if I wasn't super interested in the material, I did everything as early as I could. It's kind of always been my thing. Um, when I am doing well in school, I'm doing poorly, I fall behind, but that hasn't happened in a while anyway. So, uh, but there's one assignment that he, I was still trying to stay ahead and he'd give it to us and I didn't finish it in class because I'm trying to use this program and the program is hard to use because you had to go, you had to either buy it. And I was still like, I could, I probably could have afforded it, but it bothered me on principle to have to buy a program to do my homework. So I, uh. I went, it, you know, there was the school version of SPSS, right? But to do that, you had to log into the virtual network and the virtual network of a public college. And I'm not dissing it. I love my school, actually. Like, I will say some things about various things during this series of episodes, but like, more or less, I have really loved my experience. But public colleges, they have a lot of money overall, but it is spread thin, which means that when you join the public, when you join the virtual network from off the campus, it is not fast. Huh? <laughs> uh, which means I was at home trying to log into the virtual network to do my homework or use the system to do my homework. And it kept me up for several hours because it just didn't work correctly. I did not like it. I was very upset. Anyway, but that class was great. Um, you know, I all I know is in that first semester that I just mentioned, I got A's in both classes. That really surprised me. I want to tell you, I've never gotten straight A's in a semester before. I have gotten individual A's. I didn't get grades growing up. My school was a weird hippie school that didn't like letter grades, which is fine. But we still had tests, and the tests had numbers on them. So, you know, I don't know what you're pretending. They're saying your entire report card isn't a letter. But it's like, you know what you did in the class. So, all right, you tell yourself that you're not being judged. Whatever. Um, but anyway, I had never gotten, like, looked at my report card and seen all A's in my life. In grad school, my last semester, I got an A and an A minus. That's the best I got in a semester is A and A minus. Um, my last few semesters of, of college, I got a bunch of A's, A minuses, and B pluses. I just wasn't that kind of student. You know, I thought it was really hard college. And then a lot of my classmates told me that they were getting A's all the time. So, you know, this just wasn't the right material for me. Anyway, so I got all A's, all, all, both A's fresh, uh, first semester. Second semester, I was 
determined to do it again, just to see that I could get a 4.0 for a whole year. I didn't think it would continue after that. At some point, I was going to hit the wall, but I was still doing the heat check, doing things as early as possible. Trying to do statistics as early as possible means I had those nights when I was up super late. But I was doing well enough that, like, I was looking, this is when I was looking at the numbers. Like, if I get this, and I get this, and I got to get at least this, and I'll have a this, this, and there'll be 94, and a da, 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 da. I don't like to do this with grades, but I just was like, I really wanted to get a whole year of grades. And I know this was a parental thing. I know I wanted to show my parents. And now I've stopped telling them. But at that time, I really, it was important to me to be able to say, I finally got to where you all expected me to get academically. Which is silly, but it's true. Um, so statistics, I was actually doing really well. The other class was one that really changed things for me. And that was the... Um, language education class. We had these things called REPAC, which is like research, education, practices, and something, something, something. I don't know. But we had three of them. And they were just different subjects. So there was one on language teaching, and there was one on literacy, and there's one on disabilities. All three of these had a pretty strong impact on my scholarship over time. Um, but the first one, just by chance, like it didn't matter which order you took them in. Um, what was available my first spring was the language one. So I come in there like, I got this, because I was a language teacher, right? Um, and this was the first class we had where we shared the class with um, previous cohorts, right? We, we, were cohort, we were the third cohort from my, my program. So um, as of now, only one person has graduated from cohort one. Many should soon graduate. Um, and then maybe some from cohort two, and I'm in cohort three. Um, so there were people from cohorts one, two, and three in this class. And that was cool to spend time with people who weren't just the same eight of us. Anyway, uh, this class uh, was interesting because it was two very different professors. One professor who was tenured, been there a long time, who was who had who then later became the president of Nice TESOL, um, which I had not been involved in until later. And of course, I'm very involved now. Um, but like really entrenched, right? I like her plenty. I'm just pointing out. Um, and then another professor who was actually, was not tenured, but had been working as like in like a staff job doing research for years. And that class, like I was learning some boring ass stuff in some of it, like every class, but I was learning some really radical stuff. And there was a moment that changed things for me in that class when the one professor, the not tenured professor, gave a speech on translanguaging. It was a lesson, but it was really a speech. We were in a weird little classroom. We usually had this big classroom, but for whatever reason that night we were in a different classroom. And it was a smaller classroom. And it was like a like a classroom classroom. Like we had like desks like a like like it was felt like a high school classroom. I don't know why. It's even in a college, but it's there. Um and she went the fuck off. Have you ever seen somebody, like someone who really knows their shit, really, really give it to you? This, I had seen professors, like I knew a lot, of, I've met a lot of really intelligent, I don't like that word, but really on-ball professors, really on-the-ball scholars. But this was, was, was something else. And because translanguaging, I didn't get it. I didn't understand the difference between translanguaging and um, code switching and all that. And I'd read, the, like, this is the class where I read Flores and Rosa for the first time, and that was really interesting. And I was starting to have these ideas in my head. 
Um, and it's the class where I, again, read about translanguaging and read about some of the, you know, Kubota articles on racism and TESOL. I think these ideas were bubbling up, but I didn't know that I would travel down this path as a writer until she gave the speech. And I said, wow, like, I just felt unsettled, but in a good way. And I was just like, what I realized with, with translanguaging and many other things I've learned since then is it's okay to just be unsettled. Right? That's kind of the point of translanguaging is that it can't be pinned down. Um, it's not like, oh, this is how you translanguage. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Um, anyway, <laughs> you know the, you know that commercial, that's not how this works, that's not how any of this works. The, the woman who's doing everything wrong, the older woman, she, she used to go to the senior center where I worked. So that was kind of cool. Um, anyway. So she really laid into, she just really, like nobody was talking. Like she was just going, like mile a minute speech. So I was like, what is this? Um, and I like to think that I channel her, channel her sometimes when I'm giving my talks about whiteness and language teaching. Like when I really build to my stuff, like, you know, I always pause and ask if anybody has any, doesn't understand what I'm saying and nobody ever asks a question. Not because I'm not doing a good job, but because I feel like I make my points clearly. So she also suggested that we listen to a podcast called The Vocal Fries. And I, and I started listening to it. And that's how I got really into that podcast and really tried to listen to that. And of course, I've been on that podcast now. Hope my, my fingers crossed, but my goal is uh, when I graduate to get them both on my podcast. It's a celebration. Um, by the way, I'm doing a big thing if and when I defend my dissertation. Uh, so yeah, that was really a lot of stuff. And then another thing happened, which is I, we were supposed in the class, we're supposed to put together a little, not IRB, but just like a little small study. So I made a very short survey and I, uh, I sent it to my, my old director for my master's program and asked her to send it around. I think she forgot. So I had to send it around myself and I was just asking some very simple questions about race and language teaching, because I was interested in this, but I didn't know where it was going to take me. I thought it was just going to be a class assignment. And I've told this story before, but basically it was things like, do you talk about race in your, in your language teaching? Some people said no, fine. Some people said yes. And then I asked them for some qualitative response to that. Okay, so if you do, tell me how you do it. Some people had some really thoughtful answers. Some people said, you know, I don't really know how to do it. And that's fine, because you weren't taught to. But then some people, when they said yes, they would say, I always try to mix cultures. And I said, that's not what I asked you. Race and culture aren't the same thing. I said race, you said culture. You're trying to make things softer. You don't want to say the word race. And I said, interesting. That's interesting. Also, when I put it out, I got two different types of negative responses. I got one person who said, sent me a private message on Facebook telling me, like in a rant, like a rant talking about like, we shouldn't be talking about race. There's no such thing as race. Haven't you heard Bill Nye talk about how there's no such thing as race? I don't know what Bill Nye has to do with this. Um, she said, the real problem is xenophobia. What I wanted to say to her was like, what do you think xenophobia is based on? Like, honestly. But I, I just said to her, like, you don't have to take the survey. The funny thing is, she she's a very nice lady, which is actually how a lot of this stuff happens. There's very nice ladies who cause a lot of these problems. Um, so, but she's like very supportive of my work now. So I don't know, weird. Good thing I didn't listen. 
And at the exact same time as that was going on, I went to Toronto to go to AERA. My wife was mad because I spent too much money on the hotel. But it was a nice hotel. And I just, I just wanted, I didn't know. I, I waited till the last minute and it cost a lot of money. Not that much money, but, you know, didn't have to be that much. It was very lonely. It was one of the few times I was away with my wife um, since we've lived together. I had gone away to Seattle in 2017 and I went to Toronto at that time. This is after we had Neptune and then she had trouble with him. So she was a little nervous about being with him for the weekend back when he was a lot of trouble. He's sleeping right next to me now. So um, I went to the conference and I've told this story many times. Uh, I get there on a Friday late and I don't want to go to sleep. So I went to a bar and I was like, all right, this is kind of, I mean, what am I going to do? I don't know anybody. So I sat in a bar for a second, kind of expensive. And the next day I went to the conference and I was like, I'm going to go to everything. And I was trying to look at, you know, I was looking, I was really interested in the sort of race and language intersection. So I went to four sessions that day. I could have gone to more, but I got overwhelmed. And now I look back and I realize with my sensory issues, like I was just overwhelmed by the chatter in the background and, and so on and so forth. And it was a huge fucking space, like a convention center that's like, there must have been 10,000 people at this conference. And it was like, it's a convention center, but it was like, there were two areas. It was a main area. And then there was, you would go through a corridor and then there was a whole other area with several different levels, several different levels of places, right? Ridiculous, ridiculous. Um, and, and I remember the one in Seattle was big, but it wasn't nearly this big, you know? Um, so, Anyway, I, the first day I went to four sessions. And one of the sessions I went to that day, one of the people there was Professor Cheryl Matias, who, if you don't know, is a Filipino-American professor who is now at the University of Kentucky, now a full professor. Um, and she has done a lot of work on whiteness and emotionality of whiteness. And I had not met her, read her work yet at this point. I've probably seen her name in a citation, but I had not read her work yet. And it's one of those horrible academic presentations that's like here 12,000 people each of you gets 30 seconds to present and like she was presenting on her entire book in uh like eight minutes <laughs> which I probably will have to do once mine comes out uh but anyway I didn't remember too much about her actual presentation not that it was bad but it's just like there's too much going on and then like uh the question and answer session came and somebody asked, some white lady, white professor, asked her basically like, it was really interesting, but like, what do I do? And I don't remember exactly what Dr. Matias said, but she basically told the white lady like, do the reading and then you'll know what to do. As in like, don't, I'm not gonna give you a shortcut. And I was like, oh, you can say that? Oh, you can, you don't have to be super obsequious to these people? Huh, now of course it, it helps that she was tenured, but still, I don't, you know, I'm not obsequious to the people who say nonsense to me either. And uh, it probably will not help me get an academic job, but whatever. Anyway, so that was interesting. The second night on the Saturday, I, uh, I went out, but again, just sat there. I didn't know it. I mean, like I had, I saw a lot of my classmates from my program and it was, it was this weird situation because it was Toronto and it was, it was cold and they wanted to sit outside and it wasn't COVID time, but this was not COVID time. It was, it was less than a year before COVID, but it was not COVID time. So I don't know why people wanted to sit outside. Um, 
and me and the, one of the black professors were just like, I don't understand why they're all out here in the cold. We're trying to sit near the uh, heat lamp. And it kept happening where I wasn't sure if they were going to pay for me. So I wasn't buying a lot of drinks. And then Hunter said they were going to pay. This is just very annoying to me that I never know. And then I was trying to save money. Whatever. Um, so then that night, again, I went out and I just sort of sat there. And I was really thinking about that. Thinking about what I'd seen that day, you know. Again, I didn't do anything. I just sat there at the bar by myself. Um, and then the next night. The next day, I went in and I went to a friend. And this is the story you've heard a million times. I saw a presentation about uh, disability and language, and I posted about it online. And my friend's wife said, you know, teachers work hard, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, why is this woman so upset that I said that some teachers can be gross? Um, because I didn't even say the word racist. I didn't even say the word white. She's just all in her feelings. I don't understand. But I was a little shaken by it because I'm just like, this is weird. Like, if I had said something about racism and somebody got mad at me, that would be silly but i could at least understand but this doesn't even have to do with it so i actually i told this story before i went outside and somebody was writing something about racism and i actually just bothered her and i asked for her advice like what do you do in these situations she said to me and this is a lesson i hold with me and i give to a lot of people it doesn't take long to determine if somebody really wants to listen and discuss or if they just want to stamp their feet you can give them one chance to let them know to, to, to show you whether they really want to discuss uh, or if they just want to stamp their feet. And if it's the latter, don't pay any attention past the beginning. You do you give everybody one chance. That's what I do. I give everybody who has a problem with what I'm saying one chance. Um, I give them a thoughtful response, if I can, if what they're saying isn't like racist or whatever. If they have a question for me that I'm a little worried about. If they send me some rant, I ignore it or I dismiss it or I make fun of it. But, right. And that really stuck with me because like, it's pretty easy to tell if somebody really is genuinely curious. Like if somebody has a genuine question about something I'm writing and they're, you can tell they're a little bit nervous about, you know, the radical ideas or whatever, but they're being genuine. It's not hard to tell. It's not hard. And I learned a lot from that at that conference. And I learned between that and I was still working on that survey, you know, from there I said, this, this is it. Like, that between my friend's wife having those issues when I didn't even say anything about whiteness or whatever, they just, you know, and then between when I did ask about race, people not wanting to talk about race. I said, there's something here. Why, why do people in this profession feel like they, their, their hard work invalidates the fact that they could be complicit in harm. And as you know, from my work that that really led me a lot of places. So to finish this, um, session off i want to tell you about the end of that semester so um because from there we'll go into how i started writing the altruistic shield and all of that in the next one um hopefully you find this interesting but if you don't i'm sorry <laughs> uh so i get back from the conference and you know i finished the semester i did everything three four weeks early at that point um i remember that year being annoyed because i'm a little annoying person that a lot of my classmates had gone away on spring break and then come back and said that they were behind or something. And I was like, well, then you had a whole week. I, on spring break, didn't go anywhere because I did not have spring break because I teach adults. <laughs> um, so that created a little rift in my head. And I was worried that my classmates were coming distant from me. 
um, because I really was annoyed because I was doing everything on time and or early and they weren't and they kept wanting more time for things. And I was like, I, I, I wouldn't have cared except we had a group chat and they kept talking about it. I had to mute the chat eventually. And it was annoying because the group chat was sometimes really useful. Um, well, we don't have it anymore because we're all separated now. But, um, you know, I really, it was really hopeful because we, I put the group chat together myself is really what I'm saying. I did it. And it got me wondering in my paranoid way if they were talking about me outside of the group chat because I was so rigid about getting things done. Um, but what I couldn't tell is that the way they made fun of me was actually done with a lot more respect than people in my past had made fun of me. And it took me another couple of years to realize that they did have respect for me and the way that I did things. Um, so that was nice. But yeah, so then I had another issue later that at the end of that semester though, because um, the statistics class final and the due date for the final paper for the language class were the same day. And they were stressed out, which is fine. This happens in a semester. We weren't, it wasn't going to be the type of program where there were a lot of tests, education program, right? But the statistics, you got to have a test of statistics. Um, and they were asking the language professors to push it back, specifically for our year because we were first years. And so one of them took it upon herself to email the professors with a demand that we have extra time to turn our language paper in because we need time to do our best work. And the rest of them applauded her for doing so. Now I'm I'm I, I am kind of a jerk because I emailed the professors to because I had already turned it in. And I said, please don't give me extra time. I already turned it in. Just go ahead and grade it. I don't want any extra time. <laughs> what I also said was they do not speak for me. But hey, they don't. I was talking to my wife about it and she got tired of hearing about. I forget, I mean, it's been a while, I remember this. I was stressed out about it because I, like, although it was annoying that they were doing it, what I was really scared about was a distance from them. I didn't want them to sort of feel distant from me because of the way I was doing things. But over time, we sort of settled in and I was glad that I found a rhythm with them. I don't know, maybe they hate me, but I don't think that they do. Um, and yeah, so this semester ended with, with more A's and I'm not gonna keep repeating my grades. Let's put it this way. It's been A's the whole time, and that has been very surprised. It, at a certain point, I got used to it, but after for the first few semesters, I was still surprised. I almost didn't get it in the language class because they took a lot of points off for some protocol-based nonsense, like uh, I didn't do exactly this, this, and this. Um, but I got it there, and then uh, over the summer, I really decided... I wanted to just get something published. And that's really where all the rest of this stuff started because by the end of that summer, not only had I written what would become my first published article, I also started this podcast. We'll talk about that next time.